Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. Christmas is on us, and I think I, as I think about this Christmas season, I think about all the gifts that we get to buy, we get to share, and all that elements of that. And again, Dama Reese and our Christmas offering is part of that. But you're going to get a gift, and have you learned the art of disappointment? That whenever you open that gift and you go, what were they thinking? You know, if, you, if I can enter into your minds, I would probably say that you've said the same things to yourself. As soon as you open up one of those gifts, you're thinking, who can I re-gift this to? Or I wonder if I can figure out where they bought this so I can take it back tomorrow. You know, and again, you don't have to raise your hand on that because I know nobody thinks that way of your gifts. You only think that way of other, other people's gifts. But you get these gifts sometimes and, and you think about them. So we're talking about Emmanuel as being God with us as a gift that just doesn't happen at Christmas time. But it actually is a gift from God from the beginning of time. And when you think about that, we go back to realizing that God with us is culminated at Christmas, but it was conceived in the garden. In the garden, we talked about that last week, and if you think about this little tree representing, this is not supposed to be the Charlie Brown Christmas tree, but when you think about that Christmas tree and that how that represents the garden. And we love gardens and we love it. Well, you love getting in the garden dirt or you just love experiencing the garden, the smell of the garden and the growth of the life and the promise of the garden. If we remember that Jesus or the Emmanuel, uh, Yahweh God, he walked with them in the cool of the evening. He went looking for them whenever they had weren't turned away from him. But I just wanted that to set with you to realize that it was God who pursues us. It is God who wants to enter into our lives. It's God who wants to be with us first, okay? He is the initiator. It is from his vision and his desire from the beginning of time that we would be in that kind of relationship. And I want you to notice about this verse that there's a time and there's a place. A time and a place in the cool of the evening, in the garden. Do you have a time and a place every day, every week, a time and a place that you meet with God, that you have that sweet communion, that shalom is reestablished in this world that we are living east of Eden? We're living outside of Eden. We want to get back to the shalom of Eden. You will not unless you reimagine the creation story and say, Jesus, God, Emmanuel, he had a time and he had a place with them. Do you have a time and a place with Jesus? I pray you do. But there's also other gifts. There's other times that we see the Lord. We see Emmanuel. Emmanuel is also with us in our deserts. And whenever you think about a desert, I have to think about sand. When you think about sand and you think about living inside of a desert, you think about that space, that time, whenever it's sandy and it takes time. And in fact, when you think about time and sand and you look at uh, desert experiences, they're long. Days are long. Months are long. Seasons are long. Times and feelings and emotions are long. And as you just watch the sand in the hourglass go down, now this is not the length of my message, it's only a 15-minute hourglass, it's the longest I could get. But when you think about this, you watch it. And the longer you watch it, 
the longer it takes. It's, it's one of those experiences that sand represents time and represents abrasion and represents, a, represents, again, a harsh environment is where it was created, if you think about that. But Emmanuel is even in those moments of desperation. He's even in the barren moments. He's even in those moments whenever, as it says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to the depths, you are there. Whatever desert you've experienced in life, I promise you, Emmanuel is there with you. Now, there are times that I have to say that we bring on deserts. Okay, we make a zig when God wants us to zag. We turn right when God wants us to turn left. We want our self-autonomy and we don't want God telling us where or what to do. And so what we do is we go over and do our thing and we end up on a dead end street and we end up regretting it and we end up looking back and, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? What was I doing? Yes, you zigged when you should have zagged. And we ended up putting ourselves there. But I'm not going to talk about that. That's another message for another day. There are times that we put ourselves in deserts. But there are times when you're doing everything right. Well, not everything right, but you're doing most things right. Whenever you are thinking about your life and you're thinking, okay, God, I don't know of anything that I'm doing wrong. I, I'm sitting here in a moment of a desert, barren, heated moment. God, why, why am I in this desert, this dry place, this hard and harsh place? Why am I here? And you cannot point to anything that you did to get you there. I'm not trying to say you don't do that self-examine and start with yourself first, but there are times when even good Godly people find themselves in deserts. It leads to the, the great theodicy. That theodicy is a question. It's a theological question that you find out there. It says, why do bad things happen to good people? And you can go even deeper into that as some people have and literally walked away from God. Why, if there is a all-powerful God and he is good, why would a good, all-powerful God allow bad things to happen to good people? Because either he is not all-powerful or he is not all-good. When you pick up the book, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, Rabbi Kushner takes a deistic kind of view of God where he really believes it's fatalistic that, that you're going to have bad days and that God is somehow removed and he has no control over it. So he's really not omnipotent. But that's one of the best-selling books out there are people trying to wrestle with why does bad things happen to good people. And the thing is, is that's a question that we're going to wrestle with all of our lives whenever we get that diagnosis, whenever we're fired, whenever the relationship falls apart, and we were loyal, and we were faithful, and we were, we were, we were, and we literally can't find anything that we've done wrong. And again, I'm not trying to make us all in this victim mentality, but I want us to see sometimes that actually it was God who led us there. And that may be a really hard pill to swallow. But as C.S. Lewis was dealing with his own faith and his own evolution of his own faith, and he found out that his wife was diagnosed with cancer, it deepened his faith. And he said this about that experience in his book called The Problem of Pain. When he writes about his wife and the loss of his wife, he says, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaking, speaks to our conscience, but he shouts to us. In our pain. It is the megaphone that rouses the deaf world. 
Take your Bibles and be finding the book of Exodus. Whenever you come to the book of Exodus, you'll find that uh, this is a season whenever after 400 years, the people of Israel have been living in Egyptian bondage. Now it started off good. Read Genesis excuse me, chapter 50. And you'll find that Genesis started whenever the people of Israel came there as a, as a form of benevolent actions of the Egyptian government. But 400 years later, it turns from this benevolent action of the government to slavery of, 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 of Egypt onto the people of Israel. And God sees this. He hears the cries of his people. And this is how he responds. This is his vision for his people. And notice what it says here. It says, I am the Lord. I will bring, I bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you from the outstretched arm of the great acts of judgments. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now notice sandwiched between the two statements of I am the Lord your God. All the things that God is going to do. Now can you imagine the people of Israel in chapter 6 hearing this? They're going, oh yes God, let's go for it. Thank you for that vision for my life. Thank you for the plan. Thank you that you have a wonderful plan for my life. Chapter 7 to chapter 12, you find that the plagues of Egypt are attacking literally the Egyptians' gods one after another, just tearing down one Egyptian god after another. And then it's finally, we fast forward uh, on, on over to chapter 13. And we find this statement, finally Pharaoh gives up after all of his gods have been torn down. He gives up, and when Pharaoh let the people go. Now, that's a beautiful statement. When Pharaoh let the people, finally the Emancipation Proclamation has been realized and they are free, free at last, free at last. And then we skip over a few verses, chapter 14, verse 30, and almost as if you could marry these two together, as if one said this verse and the next verse picks right up, you could just imagine it is all this beautiful, continuous story. Chapter 14, verse 30 says, the Lord saved Israel. So the Pharaoh lets the people go. The Lord saved Israel. That day in the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw that the Egyptians, uh, the Egyptians dead in their seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord uh, used against Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and the servants of Moses. This is just a beautiful continuation of the story except... It's not. Because what happens between verse 17 of chapter 13 and verse 14 of chapter 30 is Emmanuel meets them in the desert. So literally, he's setting them free at the same time. They're not free yet. They're going to go through this desert experience as they're led out into the desert by the Lord. That's what I'm saying. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God do what he does? Why does he send us through pain? Why does he send us through sorrow? Why does he send us through disappointment at times? It's because he's doing something. He is showing up as our Emmanuel in the midst of that painful moment. And you come to chapter 13, verse 20, and you find that the Emmanuel, that God is with us in verse 20 and 21, it says, and they moved on from Sukkoth and camped at Etham 
in the edge of the wilderness. So literally what this is, this is day one of the exodus from Pharaoh. They're now moving out. They're now setting their camp up. And notice what they're going to have behind them is the first, the, fl- uh, the, the, the flourishing fertile lands behind them of the Nile Valley. What is in front of them is the wilderness, is the desert. When I say wilderness, don't think of trees and forests and all that kind of stuff. Think of desert, okay? That's every time you see wilderness, you need to think of the Sinai Desert or something along those lines because that's exactly what they're looking at. And in this moment, what does God do? He shows up. And the Lord went before them. By day, a pillar of cloud, he led them along the way. And by night, a pillar of fire to give them light. And they, that they might travel by day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. 24-7. 24-7. Emmanuel was with them. 24-7. Emmanuel is with you even in the midst of your desert. There are three directions that Emmanuel will take us when we're going through a desert that he's leading us into. One is the navigation, that we need to trust God with his inefficient desert directions, okay? You might even look at some of God's directions and say, God, you're inept. God, what are you thinking? And you know what? He is thinking and he is doing, but he's not doing what you're doing. He's not thinking what you're thinking. This is what it says in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my way, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now follow that train of thought. He doesn't think like us. He doesn't do like us. He doesn't plan like us. So if we are going to go with God into the desert, if we're going to follow him, we've got to be willing to go in his inefficient planning. Because whenever you look at what God leads them into, it is completely that. He's leading them into a foreign land, a foreign place, and he's going to lead them there in in this way that you're going to go, no, 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 no. Have you ever argued with the navigation system in the car? I literally have seen that happen where people plug in the date, the, the place, and they're going there, and they're arguing with the GPS. It's like, okay. If you want to do that, then you do that, but do that on your own time. But I want you to see this about God. Is God is very inefficient sometimes in his planning. We think this, oh, my future. God has a future. God has a wonderful plan for my life. It's all going to be up and to the right. It's like the meme. We see ourselves on this little trail. We're biking it up. Here's the beginning. Here's the ending. And here we go. We're on a journey, and there's the destination. But as you know, and I know, that is not how reality goes. Reality looks more like this. It looks more like hills and valleys. It looks more like streams. It looks more like storms. It looks more like hard work. And sometimes it's backward before you go forward. It is this incredible, even though the law of a straight line says that the fastest point, the fastest way between two points is a straight line, God doesn't always choose straight lines. Look at verse 17, back at verse chapter 13, verse 17. And Pharaoh let the people go, and God uh, did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although it was near. So throw the map up, guys. This satellite map of, of Egypt into Israel. You see the flush, 
you see the 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 the, the, the land of Egypt and all of its all of its greenery and all of its uh, all of its life and vegetation, and, and then you see uh, Israel or Cana up up into the right, and, and you think, okay, God's leading us there to another plush land, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, God signed me up. Let's get on that train. Let's get on that road. And there is literally to this day Highway 40 that travels the coastal highway that takes you from Egypt all the way to uh, Gaza Strip today or uh, to the southern part of Cana. That is the fastest way. That's not the way God chose. Notice the way that God chose. South. Southeast. Not northeast. God, you're not going in my direction. You're not going the fastest way. You're not going the most direct way. Sometimes God doesn't go in the most efficient ways. We have to trust his navigation. Say these words with me from Proverbs Say them with me and read them out loud. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. It may be straight down to the dead Red Sea or it may be straight in some other direction, but he will lead you in the path that he has for you to go on. The thing is, is will I trust him? And if you are depending on your understanding to make sense of it, many times it won't. People say, trust the process. I say, trust the person. And that's what he tells us to do. Why? Why does does he send us south? Why does he send us to the desert further away from our final destination? Why does he send us to the Red Sea? I mean, come on. We don't have a ferry boat. We don't have, we don't have bridges. We, we can't get from one side to the next. In fact, God had a reason for it. Look at verse 17 as it continues. For God said, lest the people, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. See, the problem is, is that if they had gone up to the right, they would have hand, landed right into the hands of the Philistines. The problem with going up to the right is that it would have been the most efficient way, the the most practical way, the most make sense kind of way. But that would have led them from slavery to the Egyptians to slavery to the Philistines. And as we will see in a few moments, the Egyptians are going to come after them and they would have been the spoils of war right in the middle of it all. And listen, there's some people that will literally run from one form of slavery to another form of slavery just trying to get away from this form of slavery. They'll run from one addiction to another addiction just to get away from one addiction. One job to another job, one church to another church, one relationship to another, all because they're moving from something and not following Emmanuel. Emmanuel knows things about us that we don't know about us. He said, I don't want to send them into the hands of the Philistines. You didn't even think about Jesus' life. It was true of him as well as he is living out his life and launching his ministry. He just literally has his baptism experience in the Father. The heavens open, the dove descends, the Father speaks out a blessing over his own son. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This beautiful, epic moment in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And that's the launching of Jesus' ministry. And where does Jesus go from that baptism experience? But he goes into a wilderness. 
led by the Spirit. There will be times that God's Spirit will lead you straight into the desert. His navigation doesn't make sense. It's not always efficient. But it leads me to the second directional. Call it a waypoint. There's the hesitation. There's the hesitation. It's hard enough to go to the desert. It's even harder once you get in the desert. Because now you're feeling as if God has abandoned you. What are you thinking, God? Following God is is, 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 is part of the reality. And then if you go on in chapter 14, you find in chapter 14, verse 5 uh, and following, he says, when the king of Egypt told them that the people had fled, the mind, uh, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants uh, was changed. So, okay, you can go. Oh, you can't go. They changed their mind. Why did they change their mind? What is it that we have done that we now no longer have the Israel serving us? We just lost our workers. Now I'm going to have to wash my own dishes. Now I'm going to have to sweep my own floors. I don't want that. I want my slaves back. Well, Pharaoh mobilizes his chariots, his choice chariots of 600, and launches them on a chariot chase of men and women and children, 600,000 men. So you could probably guess about 2 million people are marching through the, this wilderness on their way to the promised land via the Red Sea. And they're on their way, and all of a sudden now they hear the hoof prints of Pharaoh behind them. What do they do? Do they just rally themselves, have a devotional, have a big pep rally? Verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The emotion of fear and anxiety take over who they are. Verse 12, leave us alone. This is what the people of Israel say to Moses and to God. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Basically, they moved away. It got harder, not easier. It got more challenging as they went every step they took. Imagine this for a moment. They have the hoof prints of chariots behind them. They have desert sand under their feet. They're not in a fertile land. They've come from the fertile land. They have the Red Sea in front of them. Their circumstances, past, present, and future, are impossible. What do you do with that? I want to go back. I want the good old days. I'll put myself back into slavery. That's why a lot of times people who are leaving slavery, as we talked about earlier, they cycle back through it because it's all they know for 400 years. The problem is is that that work of deliverance, that work of freedom that takes time, that takes the sands of time, that seems so long, is when God does some of His greatest work. And on us. Eugene Peterson, one of the mentors of mine from afar, has, as a pastor, tells the story in his autobiography of uh, pastoring a church in Baltimore, but being home, his home front was where his family was, where he vacationed, where they had family events, was in Montana. 
and that every year they would travel from Baltimore to Montana, and it was in that time that he would decompress and offload everything from the ministry from Baltimore and pastoring the church and all the complexities of people and people and work of the ministry. And it was on his way to Montana, the beautiful Rockies and the beautiful vistas of, of, of Montana, that he passed through South Dakota and the Badlands. He said when he passed through those Badlands, it was, it was barren. This is the way he describes the Badlands. He said, there's nothing, nothing is green or growing. There are no trees, there are no water. There's no towns. There's only signs of life. The only sign of life was an occasional vulture cruising a carry-on, dead roadkill, if you will. But even that vulture was more like a reminder of death. And he said for six years in his ministry, he went, he calls them the Badlands. You might be living in that right now. You might have come out of that sometime back. You might be heading into that. I'm not saying it's going to get easier. I'm saying it may get tougher before it gets easier. The past two or three years, I've told you my journey through anxiety, and I've literally asked God, God, move me, God, move me, God, move me. I've looked for opportunities for God to move. I've tried to push doors open to think about opportunities to move to, and God has said more and more, more and more, more and more, no, you're here. Call them your bad landing years. You're here. Be all here. And this is a verse that has been true. And I hope it's true of you if you're living in the badlands. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in the sun-scorched land. Some of y'all are living in the sun-scorched land right now. You didn't get there because of bad decisions. You got there because life got bad. Because life got handed to you. And you're thinking, God, where are you? Moses does as any great leader should do. He steps into that vacuum. He steps into the emotions of fear. He steps in the emotions of, I want to go back to the good old days of slavery. And this is what he says in verse 13 and 14. He said, and Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. You don't need a big, long list, okay? You don't need a big paragraph. You don't need somebody to preach a sermon to you. You just need some very clear, actionable steps. And one of those is get fear out. Fear takes over in ways that makes you think irrational thoughts, makes you self-justify, gives you a spirit of entitlement, sends you into bad places, and it is I pointed out last week when the first emotion that we see in the garden after they sinned was fear. They're not. Stand firm. We're going to talk all about standing firm in January. When we talk about the spiritual warfare, he calls us to stand firm. The salvation, it's coming from God. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will do the work. You stand firm. You get fear out of here, you watch and you experience. And I can say in my own life, through it all, 
I have experienced that in the sun-drenched days of ministry and life, I've experienced that God is still guiding, that God is still satisfying. That navigation, God, doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. The hesitation, God, I'm ready to leave. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to bounce. I'm ready to jump ship. I'm ready to go back. I'm ready to go forward. I'm anywhere but here, God. Leads to revelation. It is in those moments that we see God more fully. Now, maybe not in the very moment, but maybe God gives you just a glimpse. Maybe it's the hem of his garment that you touch that God brings healing to that that space. But this becomes the salvation moment in the people of Israel. It wasn't when they left Israel. It wasn't when they left Egypt. This was the moment that they had to trust God. This is the moment that their salvation, as Moses said, is going to come to them. This is the the time when even Paul, later on in the New Testament, refers back to as the salvation moment of the people of Israel. He says, all were baptized into Moses uh, Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And as we think about that, here is a time of deep, deep, painful darkness. But here's a time where God is showing up. I can't not recommend enough this book. I've said it in here multiple times and we'll say it again. If you haven't read it yet, read it. A Grace Disguised. It's about a story about Jerry Setzer and how he, in one night, due to a drunk driver, again, sometimes the deserts come at us come to us, and we didn't do anything to, to, to earn it. Drunk driver hits he and his family in a car after they're coming back, and I think it's in Idaho. They were on a trip to see an uh, Indian reservation and some experience with the kids. The grandmother, the mother, the kids were all in the car. And at the moment of impact, Jerry's mother dies, wife dies, and daughter dies. Three generations impacted in one moment. The whole book is talking about that healing journey that he went on. I want to pull out one statement about what he says about the pain. He says, however painful, sorrow is good for the soul. However difficult the terrain, however difficult the desert, however difficult the wilderness, however barren it may be, in this painful moment, God is still there. Emmanuel is still there. And he's going to show up in that, in, in that season. Now, I'm not going to read the story, but you know the story because you heard it as a kid. You heard it as a child growing up. You've heard it before. You've seen it in movies. It's, it's out there. It's the crossing of the Red Sea. This incredible moment, this incredible miracle of the waters parting and them walking on dry ground, the Egyptians coming in behind him. It was the final, the cataclysmic moment that finally Pharaoh chalks it up and says, I can't keep these people. Soldiers are wiped out. The people walk through on dry ground. They are, they're, they're free and they're victorious on the other side. Isn't that beautiful? Hooray! You would have never gotten to the Red Sea had you not gone the way of Emmanuel. You would have never seen the miracle of God in the parting of the Red Sea had you taken the coastal highway into the hands of the Philistines. Had you taken the most efficient, the most practical, your plan, your navigational way to go, you might never have experienced God's incredible 
salvation moment. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in the 20th century, probably one of the leading thinkers uh, in all things pain and suffering and death and dying, said this statement, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, an understanding of life that fills them with compassion and gentleness and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. Leave that quote up there. The most beautiful people are those who have gone through the deserts, have gone through those moments, have gone through those seasons, have gone through those years. The most beautiful people are those people. God is wanting to do something incredible even when He leads us into the desert. I close with a words of a hymn, an old Christmas carol that is no less was written in the somewhere 1,200 years ago, maybe 8th to ninth century. Words of this, of this Christmas song was sung by the monks in the monasteries seven days before Christmas Eve as a prayer, a beckoning prayer for their Savior to come. In 1710, it was put into the words that we know of them today. It's lasted through the generations. O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits for thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds by night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Would you bow your heads with me? If you today do not know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you do not know Emmanuel who will walk with you through the deserts of life, I'll start there by saying right here where you're at. Let Jesus know, I want you, Emmanuel. I need you, Emmanuel. Tell him in your own words. Last Sunday, we had a young lady walk up after the, after the last service. We were talking about union and communion with God. And she said this, how do I know God wants communion and union with me? You could tell there was, there was pain, there was hurt behind that question. Listen, he wants it. He made you for it. And I pray right now that if you are in that desert season, that you will trust him in it. Experience Him in it. But you will see Him in it. Father God, we do not come flippantly to Emmanuel. We come rejoicing in the midst of something that we may not be rejoicing over. That Father, the fact that You, Emmanuel, are with us even in deserts of life, thank God. 
in barren seasons, whenever we don't see resources or provision, thank you, Emmanuel, that you're with us. You give us a cloud by day and fire by night. Lord, you take care of us 24-7. Lord, may everyone in this room, everyone watching online, know you. Jesus as Emmanuel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You stand and worship with us. Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live Sent.